All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only tested crypto tax software. Luca's listened to your feedback. Now you can calculate capital gains and see the results using three different accounting methods side by side, all for free. You only pay if you want to access their detailed tax reports. Luca supports unlimited transaction uploads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refund. Luca Tax wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code Masari Tax and you'll get $5 off the normal price of $39.95 when downloading today. Go to L-U-K-K-A-T-A-X.com and save money this tax season. Have you seen what the Crypto.com team's been up to lately? Talking about the MCO Visa card. It's a beautiful metal card you can top up with crypto and spend anywhere Visa's accepted. You get up to 5% back on all your spending, plus 100% rebates on Spotify, Netflix, and now Amazon Prime Travel. How about unlimited airport lounge access and interbank exchange rates? So many perks in just one card. You can download the Crypto.com app and reserve yours today. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2-Bit Idiot. I have my pandemic beard going. I have my pandemic hair going. I am live from the Citadel in an undisclosed location. Uh, but my guest today, Mike Belshi, is in a decidedly nicer location in terms of his background, at least. I hear the birds chirping in the background. It's a beautiful day. You wouldn't know that the whole world is falling apart if you just looked uh, at Mike's background right now. Um, Mike and I have known each other for about six, six and a half years, basically. I mean, since you, started, since, since you started BitGo, um, DCG was an investor, uh, is an investor, um, which is how we first got to know each other, spent some time together while I was at Coindesk, uh, working on the consensus conferences. You're an early supporter. Thank you again. Um, and, uh, and, and generally speaking, you know, BitGo has been one of the most important infrastructure providers for uh, institutional custody since a very uh, early stage in the crypto markets. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, progress of the institutional Bitcoin and crypto narrative more generally, uh, and how, if at all, that's been affected by the coronavirus um, and, uh, and some of the macro disruptions that we've seen in the last couple of months. Um, we're going to talk about the Harbor acquisition and, uh, and then we'll just kind of see where it goes because uh, we're, we're, we're going to spitball here. And, uh, and Mike uh, has a ton of war stories that hopefully he's going to share uh, on, uh, on this call, uh, as well as some insights into where the puck is moving. Because Mike, you know, I, I kind of look at the institutional narrative and it seems extremely bifurcated right now with everything that's going on. And on the, on the one hand, you know, we had this Black Thursday where, where you know, Bitcoin sold off and there were all these uh, other derivative issues, plus tokens getting sold off, the, you know, the, there was the BitMEX issues. Um, but on the other hand, you know, with the passage of the stimulus bill and like $6 trillion, $10 trillion, I, I can't even keep track of how much the Fed is, is committed to infuse into the system. Um, that narrative of Bitcoin as an inflation hedge is in full, um, 
full effect uh, and, and, and really having its moment right now. So um, I guess, you know, I, I, I want to spend a bit of time talking about those, um, those macro narratives, but, but maybe this is a good opportunity to just talk about your origin story and how we got to this point and how, how Bitcoin, uh, Bitgo got to this point. I know it's a little cliche, but um, for, for listeners that are not as familiar with Bitgo, um, I wouldn't call you behind the scenes because you do have an active presence on, on Twitter, but um, maybe uh, it's less sexy what you do than some of the consumer applications, right? Um, it's the necessary plumbing uh, of, the, of the market. What, um, what have you done with BitGo uh, and, and kind of how, how did you first get into the crypto markets and set on uh, this multi-signature custody solution that's now, you know, kind of evolved into, into something much, much more? Sure. Uh, well, first off, th- thanks for having me on, on the show, Ryan. And I think actually XGBTC mailing list. You remember that thing? Oh, I, I think do. So, right? I think mm-hmm. that's where we might have first, first met. Yep. Yep. Uh, uh, well, let's see. And, and I'm going to have to uh, counter. I think that uh, it's not as unsexy as you might think it is. Um, although we're a little bit behind the scenes, that's true. As a white label service provider, um, you know, we do more on-chain transactions than anybody. Um, and uh, actually pretty proud that last year the, the overall, you know, by volume uh, going through BitGo on the Bitcoin network is about 20% by volume of all, uh, of all, all exchange, um, I'm sorry, all uh, on-chain traffic there. So um, anyway, I think that starts to get pretty sexy, but I guess it depends on, on what your definition of sexy is. Um, but uh, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to say that as the infrastructure guy. Like as long <laughs> as you think it's sexy, that's all that matters to your customers. Um, yeah, we work on we work on on things that you know most people don't have to worry about. Uh, we are 100 multi-sig. We, we pioneered that um, origin story. Well, I, I've told this story a number of times, um, so I, I could tell that one again. Um, but actually, it's 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 a it's a personal use case is how how we ended up with with BitGo. Um, I did eventually finally you know back 2012 get excited about about Bitcoin. Like a lot of people, uh, I wish I'd picked up on it a little bit faster. First time I heard about it, I was like, ah, probably not, not going to work. It's a scam, et cetera. But uh, eventually um, I started digging in and, and reading the paper. And then you start to realize, wait a minute, this thing's got merit. And once you do that, you know, this is the rabbit hole people talk about. It's like this deep dive. Um, and so I think actually, if you wanted to go back to my original origin story, I think you'd have to go all the way back to like my being a kid. So obviously before, before Bitcoin was around, um, you know, a lot of us in the computer field, you know, we started out playing video games. I was actually not a huge video game player, um, mm-hmm. but a large part of how I learned computers was actually just dissecting how video games worked. And you know, back in those days, it wasn't network-based games. Everything was on your disk, and right, you had a score file somewhere, and you had your gold and your hit points, and you know, whatever else you had. Uh, it was stored on 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 disk. I learned about binary ed- binary editors and things like that. Um, and that got me into technology, just kind of dissecting it and figuring out how to cheat. And my, my willingness to play games was really up until I got to the end, and it was really kind of a race to how to get there by way of kind of cheating the system. So uh, when I did dig into the rabbit hole of what is Bitcoin, um, actually kind of that same forensics mentality went into it. I was like, wait a minute, this, this thing's got to have a hole in it. Let's take a look at how this hashing is working. Let's take a look at how these Merkle trees are working. Uh, a lot of really good computer science concepts pulled together along with the networking behind it. And I have a lot of you know, background on networking. Um, I just started trying to find holes. And, and when you can't find a hole, then you're like, holy cow, this thing is really a game changer. Um, mm-hmm. And in particular around 
the ability for us to change money. Uh, something I had not spent a lot of time on uh, in my younger years. Uh, I wasn't, didn't come up from the financial side, came up from the technology side. Um, but now you start to dissect what is money and what you can do with money that's different. Um, and, and things are quite, quite, quite a different game. So anyway, um, ultimately, once I got past that, I was helping friends acquire Bitcoin. I was acquiring Bitcoin. I was doing the best practices of the time with an AirGap laptop securely stored underneath my sofa. And, uh, and that led me to eventually think like, wait a minute, there's a lot of money on this laptop. What happens if my kids spill Coke on it? What happens if, uh, um, as I turn it on, I've got malware and I was early on the Chrome team. And so I was watching kind of all of the rise and rise of malware, which is still exponential to this day. Uh, and I, I was afraid of, of bringing that stuff online. So that led me to research. I found this little corner of Bitcoin called P2SH. And that's the underpinnings of the multi-sig protocols that we use today. Uh, because the only provider that's 100% multi-sig on everything we do, and that's because it's all about removing single points of failure. So we do that uh, to the extreme, and we do it across, you know, I don't know, a dozen chains or so, and, and you know, hundreds of tokens, all that kind of stuff. So that's how I got into uh, into Bitcoin. Um, your dozens of chains uh, and, uh, and and basically ERCs and, and, you know, all the other wallets I, I, I assume are supported, at least from the major blockchains. Um how do you think about uh, support? Because there's a very famous spat uh, between uh, you and Satoshi Nakamoto um, that, uh, <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that has gotten quite a bit of pickup um, with, and I'm talking of course about you know, uh, Bitcoin Satoshi's vision. Uh, that is a very, very extreme case, right? In terms of determining whether or not to support a, an asset. But um, I bring it up because uh, you know, at, at some point, the cost to support uh, exceeds the benefit. And yet we are also in a situation where it seems that the exchange, at least, and other infrastructure providers often have to, you know, have this race to the bottom in terms of support because the most comprehensive coverage tends to bring the most, you know, customers, the most liquidity because it's like, you know, a, a one-stop shop for any of your trading or one-stop shop for any of your, of your wallet needs. Um, most of your customers are just not, you know, going to care about the, you know, hundred, like hundredth most popular asset in terms of market cap or liquidity. But um, what's the what's the right line? And, and is this entirely customer driven? Is it um, is it you know technical driven? How do you make those um, very you know critical decisions as to which assets to support? Because for teams that are building these protocols, if they don't have if they don't have support from someone like Bitco, then then you know, it, it's a symptom of a larger problem of lack of adoption, lack of, of, you know, real community traction. Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating question. It's got a lot of facets to it. Um, on, on one hand, it's just like, well, which chains even matter, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's a, only a handful of chains today that have very significant traction. But one of the great things about this space is how much innovation is going into it. And it's easy to just, you know, prejudge every single new innovation and say, oh, that's a... I don't like to use the S word, the altcoins. Um, and uh, okay, that's one way to look at it, but everything starts at zero. And the, the idea that the first blockchain that we ever had is going to be the last one that we're ever going to have, well, I don't think that's true either. Now, I'm, I'm a huge Bitcoin fan, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm long on Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, but I also want to make sure that we capture the best possible innovations that are coming. So in general, we want to support more chains. I think there's going to be different use cases for different types of problems, whether you're talking about value store, whether you're talking about payments, or whether you're talking about remittances, right? But um, 
At the same time, there are a lot of fairly junky coins out there too, right? There's poor implementation. Mm -hmm. There's people that are doing get-rich-quick schemes, um, et cetera. And it's, it's super hard to differentiate which ones are really valuable and which ones are not so valuable, um, especially given, you know, the global, the global world that we're in, right? You've got people coming from all corners of the world with all kinds of great ideas, and how do you know whether they're telling you the truth or not? And, of course, decentralized technology is largely about making it so you don't have to know if they're telling the truth. Anyway, first off, differentiation of which coins matter and which ones don't is a tough problem. Um, now, our clients also matter. Um, and typically, who's going to be looking for kind of a multi-sig security-focused solution? We've got hot wallets, we've got cold wallets. Everything we do is with a tremendous amount of security focus. The people that need that the most are the people that are using are storing large amounts of assets, right? Um, and so we have a little bit of a self-selection bias that our clients – are on those chains that have value. If your chain doesn't have much value, the sizes just aren't that big, you know, putting $5 million into a hot wallet for a, a, a relatively small blockchain, it's not, it's not a hard problem. Um, so those, those folks may not be coming to Bitco and maybe opting for something a little bit different anyway. Um, so yes, our clients have a lot of influence on us. And as we look at, you know, a blockchain that's got a significant fork that gets significant value behind it, of course, we're going to try to support that if our clients want to extract that value. That's our job as a custodian to make sure that happens. So forks and airdrops, we've got a policy around that. And we talk with our clients. And actually, you know, when they're signing up, they ask us a lot of really smart questions about this. Uh, regulators ask as well. They want to make sure, okay, you want to be a regulated, qualified custodian here in the U.S. What are you going to do to protect your clients to make sure that they've got assets if those should come in any sort of fashion? Um, so yeah, and uh, I want to make sure your readers all do know that Satoshi Nakamoto that you referenced was not the real Satoshi Nakamoto, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we got to do a little bit of debate there. And the fact is, is that, you know, that particular chain does so little volume with our clients that, I mean, it, it literally caused us no issues other than the Twitter spat with, mm -hmm. um, with Calvin Air. So, um, anyway, it's a complicated thing. You, you need to make sure that things are reputable. Um, you need to make sure that the technology behind it is going to have some stability to it. We don't want to lead our clients down a cliff where they're going to run in trouble. Um, and mm -hmm. then we want to support our clients for, uh, you know, making sure that they've got access to whatever value they can have access to. Um, you know, the, the multi-sig um, capabilities, when you contrast with like an off-chain, you know, cold storage, you know, system where it's, it's just fully uh, custodied, it opened up, especially early on, so many opportunities for, exchanges for trading desks um, because you need faster access uh, and, and more um, Bitcoin or, or, or other assets in your hot wallets by definition almost because you are making um, a ton more transactions than just the, the traditional buy and hold investor. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you think about your customer mix? Because there's like one extreme where, you know, they just want to be able to, um, there's a customer that wants to buy, hold, forget about it, and just throw it away in a vault, whether it's through self-custody or through some other third party. And then on the other hand, um, you've got these service providers that you're, you're I imagine, are still the, the majority of your business um, that are in services like staking or lending or, or OTC trading and, and clear settle on the exchange side. What, what, what? Is that an accurate um, depiction or, or you know, how, how does the mix of clients uh, look today and, and how is that evolving? Yeah, I think uh, uh, you need to have all solutions. Um, 
and we've got some clients where a million dollars is a huge amount of money. We've got other clients where a million bucks is tiny, like let that through right now. So mm -hmm. the risk profile of any two parties on blockchain can be very different. Um, and you need both a combination of hot and cold. Also remember this asset is one that you know, most of us are expecting is gonna grow in value over time. And you, know, you could put it in cold storage today for a million bucks, but you know, tomorrow that could be 10 million bucks. Um, and yep. we've seen the pattern emerge already. So uh, we actually do risk assessments uh, every quarter uh, across our entire client base. And we have a stack rank of basically risk. And we take a look at how they've configured their wallets, what they've got in custody with us, what they've got in hot wallets. Uh, we take a look at how they've configured their policies, how many people are on their, their wallets, et cetera. And we actually literally call them up and we say, hey, you're at the top of the risk score. You got too much money in a hot wallet or whatnot. And we'll help remind them and walk them through it. And this is part of the institutional service that, that, that we provide. Um, the, uh, the reality is that you have to provide both today. Um, frankly, you know, it's disappointing to have to have cold storage. I mean, as a technologist, right, we've got internet money and then we take it off the internet in order to secure it, right? It's kind of disappointing. Mm -hmm. But, but our primary job as a fiduciary is to keep our clients' funds safe. And, you know, they don't, our, those clients don't care how we do it. They care that we keep it safe first and foremost. Um, and the idea of having technology that's going to try to keep you safe online, we've just seen that fail over and over again. Um, so for huge amounts of money, of course you take it offline. You're not accessing it every day. You can put it in deep cold storage and you're just fine. For the amount of money that you transact on a daily basis, and this is all over the map, exchanges, we've got exchanges that do 100 million bucks a day like nothing, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and then you got other folks that, that, that rarely touch their funds at all. So we can use a combination of hot and cold, mitigate the risk. We help monitor that for our clients. We help them put policies and controls on top of what they've got in hot, what they've got in cold. Some come up with what they call warm solutions, which are usually hot solutions, but they might have uh, separate controls for different keys that they use on the same wallet. You've got a lot mm -hmm. of flexibility here. Um, but the multi-sig component, uh, although it's been around for a few years, um, I think we're still just getting to like the real glory of what you're going to get with it. The ability mm -hmm. to have multi-sig where it's distributed, not just across a few keys uh, inside the same country, we can distribute those globally. Um, we can create uh, wallets which are actually resistant to jurisdictional problems, like maybe the country that you're in decides that Bitcoin's mm -hmm. no good. No problem. You've got five coins in other jurisdictions, five keys in other jurisdictions that are part of that wallet that can keep you safe. Um, the other thing that uh, has recently come up, um, I guess this is a year, year old almost now, you know, FinCEN, uh, May, May last year, finally gave guidance as to what multi-sig means in a wallet. And uh, you know, up until that time, Bitco's been operating like, well, you know, if we have one key and you have two keys, like, you know, what is that? And, and uh, there's a lot of interesting stories around that. But um, until last year, FinCEN had not chimed in. FinCEN has chimed in, and multi-sig, where you're only one key among many, is actually not considered custody. And that's hugely important. And it opens up a lot of possibilities where you can take keys. You might be able to distribute them across uh, a couple of different companies, one to hold your backup key, one to hold your co-signing key, another, another co-signing key, and you hold the last key. And, and, and you can still build these in ways that you have control of the coin, the, the overall asset, um, and yet nobody had to be a custodian. So this is actually going to open up a lot of different possibilities around payments and uh, remittances and things like that. What kind of dog do you have? <laughs> that is a uh, American bad dog. Okay. Bad dog. 
Um, he's a golden doodle. Yeah. What, 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 what kind actually? Golden doodle. Gold, golden, golden doodle. Yeah, yeah. Good. Very nice. He's, he's pretty um, good. He's trying to protect us. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's all good. That, 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 that's important in times like these, man. Um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, the multi-sig, you know, one of three or, or, or sorry, two of three or, or five of seven, you know, whatever the, uh, the rules are that are in place. Um, how do you guys typically work with other custodians? Because the, the, the crypto custody scene has exploded. Um, as the institutional narrative has, has, has started to take root. I'm not saying that there's you know, wide-scale institutional adoption yet. Maybe it's funds, maybe it's family offices. A couple of large players like Bax as part of ICE or Fidelity have started to come onto the scene. But um, generally speaking, are, are, you, are you interfacing with most of these other custodians? Um, and do you share customers where, you know, Bitco is responsible for certain architecture, but some keys are split and managed at these other regulated custodians or, or is this a winner take all business when it comes to the security solution? Because, you know, you, you'd, you'd imagine that there might be benefits to having multiple providers um, for large enough balances. So that you're not just yeah. reliant on, on, on one vendor. I'm curious no, if that's, sure. we need how them. that compares to the traditional, um, you know, custodial realm. Well, we know that we, we need multiple custodians. Our clients need multiple custodians. Um, as great as it might be for one business to hold all 21 million Bitcoins, uh, that's not a secure system. That, that's a massive single point of failure. So, of course, we have to have multiple custodians. And, and this is true not just in, in our industry, but every other industry as well. So back to 2008, if you happen to be using Lehman Brothers as a, as a custodian for one-third of your hedge fund, you're not around anymore. Um, and that same property exists today. So uh, as we get bigger, of course, our clients have to have multiple custodians. A number of them do already. So they'll split funds across uh, two custodians. I think that's, uh, that's fantastic. That's actually good for security. That's good for the ecosystem. Um, and, uh, and we benefit from that. In terms of how do the custodians interoperate today, uh, that is still growing. Um, and we, we, we need to do a lot more here. I think there's room for interoperable protocols uh, that will eventually emerge for how we can do like atomic swaps um, between custodians, perhaps of multiple assets in the same transaction. Um, and, uh, and until we have that, you know, clients, they don't have the full service of exactly what they want, but uh, we are getting to, to better ability to do that. Um, you know, the, so I, I think there are, are obviously uh, you know, there's needs to have fragmentation in this market above all else. You hear the numbers thrown around about how much is left on Binance, about how much is left on Coinbase, um, and some of the other major centralized entities. And you know they, they do create you know kind of systemic threats. Uh, and and the closest thing to an existential threat that I can think of right now is like Coinbase getting hacked or some somehow for for there to be a, a, a wide scale. Um, vulnerability that's exploited and, and, and those assets, you know, somehow get compromised. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it, you know, knock on wood, obviously, but it, it, it seems like um, that's incredibly unlikely. The much more likely vulnerability might be with exchanges that have gone fractional, unintentionally or intentionally. Um, and it seems that multi-sig transactions should put these exchanges in a position where they could do proof of reserves. Nick Carter has written about this, you know, pretty extensively. He's, I think, been the most vocal about banging the drum on this. It makes sense at a high level 
The challenge is how do you disclose your reserves uh, provably without undermining your own security systems? How, I mean, have you talked to clients about how this can be done and, and whether you know, it can or should be public? Um, and, and what could we do to bridge the gap there so that people aren't taking outsized risk keeping assets on exchanges that you know, might be overseas, might not be subject to the same you know, regulatory um, structures that they're used to, and, and quite frankly, have a history of losing funds and going fractional and kind of sweeping things under the rug until it's too late. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's not that any that. of your customers would ever do that, but <laughs> well, you could we'll split that into two different problems, right? So the first mm-hmm. one is like, how do you build checks and balances in in any system? And the second one is, what can we do that's specific to blockchains? Um, so the market structure that we have in crypto today is ironically centralized, right? Um, here we have the most decentralized currency we've ever had, and yet we trade it on the most centralized systems we've ever had, um, mm-hmm. and you know, while Coinbase has done a tremendous job, you know, growing the ecosystem. Coinbase, like Gemini, like all of the other exchanges, they operate in a centralized manner where they are the exchange. They're the broker for the buyer. They're the broker for the seller. They're the custodian for the buyer, the custodian for the seller. They're the clearinghouse. They do everything all in one shop. And, of course, we've seen fractional reserve. We saw that at Mt. Gox. They were likely hacked quite early, but nobody knew because it was all centralized within Mt. Gox. Um, we've seen it at Quadriga CX, but nobody knew except for the CEO who was busy figuring out how to get out of town. Um, so we, the first thing you can do to help with this problem is sip, simply build market structure. Um, you, know, you want Bernie Madoff to have somebody else counting the asset. And he might be trading all day long saying he's got the asset, but you need somebody that's a, a bank, somebody that's a third party that's going to say, nope, I actually have this asset. He says he has it. I say he has it. You know, that's the first thing you need to do. Um, now, the second thing is, like, what can we do inside of blockchains? And you're right. Because uh, blockchains are public and everyone can see those, we can now start to build proof of reserve systems. Um, we've had these. Uh, there's a number of mechanisms to, to do it. There's still some amount of auditing that needs to be done because, you know, the dollar side, which is usually equally important to the crypto side on, side, on an exchange, you want to mm-hmm. know that that's there as well. And yet that's not surfaced on the blockchain, at least not until we have some sort of a digital dollar, which maybe that'll come sooner than we, than we think. But um, you know, at some point, there is some amount of auditing that happens with that. You can use technology processes to prove that certain amounts of asset are on chain. You can also use um, technology solutions to prove that certain accounts are covered within Merkle tree hashes, et cetera. Um, and there's been a number of technical proposals for this. Uh, currently, nobody's really using it. And I think uh, this actually highlights um, a, uh, a strange idiosyncrasy of human beings. Like on one hand, we're really worried about all this stuff, and yet we're not demanding it of our service providers. Um, security is hard. Um, we, we all want to apply it. We want to think of it. But, you know, when you think of how to protect your keys as an individual, you might be worried about, like, how are you going to get hacked? Well, what's mm-hmm. going to happen if you die? What's going to happen if your house catches fire? Um, you know, there's a lot of problems that go into keeping your assets safe that aren't necessarily hacking problems. They're just about basic blocking and tackling and keeping it safe so you don't actually lose it. Um, and of course, you're probably going to use a strong password, one you've never used before. So you're not likely to remember it, which is actually a good thing because you don't want to get fished. But keeping things secure is hard. Uh, actually holding our service providers accountable for uh, proof of reserves is something that we have not demanded enough. Um, as we move forward, 
I hope we're going to see more and more transactions on chain. Today, the blockchains don't scale to the level of every transaction, um, and they may never fully scale to that level. However, anything that's off chain today is completely blind. It's, it's just a centralized swap. If we can make those be blockchain based, even if they are rollups and hashes of transactions, we can start to get better accounting, auditing of that. We can do proof of reserves. We can do a lot of things. So, do, do you think? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, do you think we need um, some of the privacy upgrades like Schnorr signatures first before this becomes tenable? Because you can envision a scenario where you want to prove that you have the reserves. You don't want to reveal the addresses, reveal you know how your internal systems work. And some of that, I wonder how feasible it is um, on Bitcoin uh, in particular until some of these upgrades are made. Maybe you can do it for Zcash and other privacy coins by default. Maybe you can do it now to a lesser extent on Ethereum using you know uh, some of you know uh, some of the new protocols that have uh, that have been developed. But um, and and their integration of, of zk snarks. But um, is that is that a this year thing or is this a hey we'll get to it eventually? But it hasn't become like a four alarm fire just yet you know you're never done with security you're never done with privacy you just keep raising the bar so i think these problems are just a little bit farther away from our immediate problems the first level problems we have are still the exchange failures that we're seeing today with exit scams with you know fractional reserve other problems that that, that faces not having the market structure right so i think there's simpler ways to solve these problems the other thing is there's not a plethora of um, really good custodians out there. There's a, a few, but um, they're kind of at different levels of um, maturity. So it makes it difficult for us to interface that way. I think we'll get there. Um, but uh, um, I was going to react to something else. I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, I'll come back to it. We'll, we'll come back to it. Um, do you want to finish the thought? Or? Go ahead. Okay. Um, there's a there's another element here where you know we, we talk about all of the services being collapsed into these kind of mega conglomerates you know multi feature um, uh, winner take all platforms that are doing custody they're doing staking they're doing you know exchange and and, and prime brokerage um, and particularly you know Binance Wobi Coinbase you know being the dominant platforms depending on the the, the region that you're talking about um, you just acquired a, a broker dealer license as well. Uh, and I believe you're the first entity with broker dealer transfer agent registration and 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 uh, qualified custodian through uh, South Dakota, right? Um, so, so what is that? Um, what does that mean? Like break that down and, and kind of walk through the different um, licenses that you have and why in an institutional setting you need all three of those or or, or more of those in order to really provide a full service institutional toolkit for, for investors looking at this novel asset class, trying to get comfortable with it. Maybe they've even made their decision that they want to allocate funds here, but the gating item is not interest or um, investment worthiness. Instead, it is, has any vendor checked all of these boxes and am I going to lose my job if I make a decision right. and, and this ends up getting lost or, or you know, not totally above board? All right. Well, you know, when we when we started BitGo, I guess six seven years ago now, um, you know, we really thought we were going to be technology first. This idea of uh, multiple regulatory um, oversight uh, aspects was was not something we anticipated. We really thought we would build technology, and that as the industry grew, uh, incumbents, you know, banks that you know and 
brokers that you know would use our software and take that to market through their distribution systems. Um, as it turns out, because this is money, uh, the, the ability to adopt um, new technology into it is, is harder. The bar is higher. The uncertainty about, uh, you know, does this technology work? How do we deal with uh, loss of data and things like that? Um, is, is just, a, it's a different game than what the, the incumbents have ever seen. And so they haven't been able to come in. The risk reward trade-off is not at the right level for them in order to participate in with digital assets. Um, so we've instead ended up building a lot of this ourselves. And as Bico uh, grows into different areas, we look a lot like other financial services companies. And so we've, we've shifted. Um, it's been a couple years now, but we are no longer just a technology company. Of course, we start with a super solid foundation of security which I think you absolutely have to have in this industry. Uh, you can't just be dependent on somebody else's uh, unknown technology. But now we've become a financial services firm. And so uh, we have a number of affiliate companies. It's all held by top level company, but we do our best to, to separate the functions across those. And we've got Bitco Trust Company, which has a custodial license. And you're right, that's the South Dakota license. We've got uh, a brokerage company, which has the uh, FINRA um, broker license. And by the way, that's not quite done yet. We have change of control that's still underway, but that should hopefully finish up soon. And a transfer agent license from the SEC that comes from a, in, in another, another box. So we keep all of these things separate. And the reason we're doing this is because we're trying to help jumpstart the system. So institutional investors, when they come and look at the crypto in, uh, industry today, they think it doesn't look like something that they can quite trust. Um, they are investing at small levels compared to what they do in other asset classes, very small levels. And a big mm -hmm. part of that is that there's single counterparty risk on just these big conglomerates. So imagine you're uh, a pension fund and you want to put, you know, 1% of your assets into crypto, right? So you're going to be looking at a hundred, hundred million dollars plus. Can you simply write a check to Coinbase? Here's my hundred million dollars and hope that it doesn't get lost. You would never, ever do this in any other asset class. You wouldn't have an exchange that is also the broker, that's also the custodian, that's also the clearinghouse. You would have multiple parties involved. It's a very complicated process to get through all of this, but there's a whole series of checks and balances. And the good news is that whole series of checks and balances. The bad news, those checks and balances were built a very long time ago when we didn't have the technology that we have today. So what we need to do is to build a market structure that makes sense for crypto assets. And it's going to have some things which are separated, much like existing asset classes. You need to have that just so that you can bring confidence to those people that are ready to invest very large amounts of money. Um, but hopefully we can do a little bit better, right? We shouldn't need quite so many middlemen. The number of middlemen that are involved in an equities transaction is like seven or eight. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a lot. But can we, can we bring that down while still providing safety against single counterparty risk? We absolutely can. So... Our belief at BitGo is that you know, we're, we're focused on the institutional problem. And in order for, for crypto to, uh, to take, take hold across the globe, we need to make it so everybody can use it. Retail guys, there's a whole bunch of folks in retail. Coinbase does great at retail. That's a very different problem than doing institutional. And in order to do institutional, it means you have to help build this market structure. So mm -hmm. back to these different licenses and different regulatory regimes that we're, we're contributing to, it's about helping the ecosystem evolve so that we can provide service in each of these areas. You'll notice one of the areas that Bitco does not, have, does not touch is exchanges itself. We don't do matching, right? We don't do exchange, and we never will. And the reason mm -hmm. is because we're carving out that other part of the activity so we can be a check and balance against an exchange. And as we go forward and we build the industry together, 
we'll continue to kind of maneuver around to make sure that we fit within a larger whole and the, and the end result is everybody can use digital assets and everybody has security and safety 100% of the time. Um, let's go all the way back to one of the first things that you'd mentioned uh, in, in, in the episode. You said 20% of on-chain transactions for, for the Bitcoin network are happening you know, using Bitcoin multi-sig. Um, that gives you a pretty significant sample size to be able to monitor trends and, and kind of understand you know, where the, the puck is heading in terms of institutional demand. What, um, how has the coronavirus changed uh, the appetite for large investors? How, you know, what signals, if any, have you seen from, from funds flow in terms of um, entities putting things on ice or uh, going full speed ahead as, as the narrative around, um, you know, Bitcoin is, a, is an inflation hedge is picked up. You've got these kind of dual issues. Well, maybe three, right? One, some of these larger institutions that have, have had this in the works for a while are so slow moving uh, to the industry's detriment at some points in terms of how they will, they will adopt. But it also means they're, that if they've made the decision and they're kind of underway, maybe the recent headwinds haven't really changed that too much because they're thinking super long term. Um, then the other issue is, you know, there's obviously flights uh, to liquidity and there's major concerns in terms of the crypto clientele and their health. Um, if, you know, especially if they were like a levered fund or, or if they had, you know, too much exposure or might be facing, you know, redemptions or, or, or margin calls. Um, and then there's the, uh, like the, the new entrance that everybody's, um, you know, been banging the drum about Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Has anyone bitten on that, right, of, of real size or, or import? And, and um, would you be in the driver's seat to, to see that or at least be able to study it based on what's happening on chain? Or would that still be um, hidden from you to some uh, extent because it's your customer's customer that is by and large going to be making these transactions? Some of it might come through you, but, but usually it's going to be customer's customer type of information. Well, traditionally, we, we, we do get to see flow that other people may not recognize. So, um, you know, if you have an account at an exchange, Coinbase or, or whatnot, um, you know, they issue clients a, a different receive address for receiving coins, right? Um, and if you're sending between two exchanges, um, what looks like a withdrawal to one exchange and just going off to some address and to another exchange, um, it's, it's an, an input, uh, we can see, oh, that's actually exchange A to exchange B, even though exchange A and exchange B don't know that those were coming from each other. Um, so we can see a lot of data around flows that other people don't see. In terms of coronavirus, um, I think it's probably too early to tell quite what's happening. I mean, I think the first wave we saw was a lot of flight to safety. Um, there's a lot of folks in the Bitcoin space that are uh, big believers that Bitcoin's gonna be an uncorrelated asset. And the first thing we saw with, uh, with the market starting to fall is that you know stocks and uh, and Bitcoin fell together, right? And I think that's an indicator that Bitcoin is not a hedge against the stock market performing poorly. Bitcoin is not a hedge against coronavirus. Bitcoin is a hedge against the U.S. dollar and inflation. So that first wave was about just markets correcting, and yeah, the market for crypto corrected too. And in fact, I think crypto probably participated pretty well because it's one of the most liquid assets. Um, it's uh, I'm sorry. I should clarify that it's easy to liquefy. Um, it's not, mm -hmm. it doesn't have depth of liquidity like, like other asset classes do. Um, but uh, you can easily convert it to cash. Um, although the price may, may collapse quickly. And um, 
you can do it 24 hours a day, right? So as, as the market started to fall rapidly, um, industry, they're, they're looking for cash anywhere they can get it. And that uh, flight to safety happens. And so we saw exactly that. Now in the response, the political systems around the world are all doing the only thing that they know how to do, which is to print more money. Uh, whether you're in the US or whether you're abroad, we're seeing that in droves. And those have been approved, but that currency hasn't actually started to quite flow yet. So markets are starting to anticipate what's going to happen as a result of that. And this is where we see, you know, little pockets of liftoff from, from, from Bitcoin right now, but um, not, not fully out of the woods yet. I think the other thing which is holding back institutions is a little bit of uncertainty as to what the government's going to do. Uh, regulators have more power today than they've probably had any time in the last 10 years. Um, certainly we're seeing that at the health level, there's, there's good need for that, but that also means that they're adjusting markets. So, um, you know, I think there's some uncertainty as to what's going to happen with crypto markets uh, in terms of regulators saying, hey, we're going to try to protect our currency that we're inflating. Um, even though these crypto assets might be a better, safer place to be. I think that's a losing battle in the end, but it could have temporary impacts. Um, so next two to four weeks, you know, let's see what happens uh, as that money uh, gets circulated, uh, the freshly printed supply. Uh, I think that we will see some, some change for, for crypto assets and we'll see if it starts to decorrelate from, uh, from equities. What, uh, I mean, if it, maybe, maybe that is a, a tease at the answer. I mean, what, what keeps you up at night still? Because um, I think about the industry in general and, and, and with all of the unknown consequences of the coronavirus, I'm worried that the everything else bucket is basically just taking a 12 to 18 month backseat. Um, the everything else bucket being ETH and all these other new smart contract platforms and other tokens, you know, everything that's not part of the digital gold, um, you know, disaster hedge scenario, but disaster hedge not being stock market underperformance, but currency crises, right? Um, and, and, and what impact, if any, does that have on an infrastructure provider like you as, as you think about additional services moving forward? We could see a real collapse in, in demand for non-money assets um, if, if this gets prolonged. And, um, and you know, just like, um, maybe this isn't a perfect example, but uh, you haven't really seen too many fucking people worried about like woke culture and microaggressions and like all of the other stuff that it had normally dominated the airwaves. I wonder if um, that is going to be you know consistent across everything, right? And and so like what was a shiny toy and like very fascinating for people to dabble in. Oh, I can I can create a CDP through Maker and I can do this like uncensorable, you know, uh, margin loan and blah blah blah. If if all the experiments just kind of take a backseat and people say, look, I got to put food on the table for my family. I got to protect my assets and I got to make sure that my government doesn't collapse. Um, so if I'm doing anything in crypto, it's Bitcoin, maybe stable coins because those might have a top-down mandate. Um, but, uh, you know, just generally speaking, does that have any impact on you guys or is the general trajectory the same? Because there has been this ebb and flow over time between Bitcoin dominance and, and everything else? Well, one of the hard parts of what we do is um, we're a small business in a lot of ways. Uh, now, Bitco has grown to a level, maybe it's a medium-sized business, we're 150 people big, and uh, you know, we do a lot. So relative to the Bitcoin space, you know, we're, we're not quite small anymore. Um, 
but this is going to be a very tough time for uh, companies uh, in crypto that haven't figured out uh, their go-to-market fit, that haven't got traction uh, to survive. And uh, I hope that it's not uh, all doom and gloom, and I hope that actually uh, we get through this virus relatively quickly, and I hope that uh, we're able to find a vaccine that is able to put people's fears to, to bed, at least about this one. But we'll see. Um, you know, we just don't know what's, what's going to happen there. But this is going to be a turbulent time for anybody that's um, in, in a small business. And I think that's going to hit crypto just like it would any other industry. Um, and, uh, of course, that's going to set back innovation. There's a tremendous amount of people in our industry that are in small companies that are in innovating every day and trying to figure out how to grow those businesses, and they haven't made it yet. So, of course, it's going to have that problem. Um, and uh, some of that's natural. It's, it's, it's okay. Um, some of it is, is it's unfortunate. Um, I hope that we will not have a, uh, a prolonged uh, uh, recession, depression uh, in, in the global economy. But if we do, it, the, the longer it is, the more it's going to hurt us, just like it's going to hurt every other industry. Well, uh, on the one hand, that is absolutely true. And I don't think anyone um, that's not a burn it all to the ground, uh, you know, uh, super villain, I uh, think thinks along those lines, you know, there, there is another thread where um, embology has been very outspoken. You know, I, I wrote about him uh, this morning in terms of some of his, his you know, Twitter commentary and threads. It seems like he's living in the future right now and he's helping people kind of like bridge to the future, which, which, very often is, it sounds pretty dystopian. Um, but uh, one of the things that he's written about pretty extensively is uh, does do uh, bureaucratic states that are not actually functioning in reality that we all know are not functioning do those balkanize or, or ultimately break down and, and, and at, at the kind of sharpest contrast is the future centralized East versus decentralized West. So, you know, said another way, is this a potential, opening for mass adoption, mainstream adoption of, of crypto protocols and decentralized technologies, um, maybe even before they're ready, but just based on necessity. Do you, do you buy into that at all? Or, or are you, are you a little bit more um, of the, the vein that's, you know, well, we're all still humans right now. And, and, and obviously the biggest thing is the economic concerns is still going to be tied to the broader market. Well, I guess maybe it just depends on your time scale. If you're thinking it's in the next uh, 12 to 24 months, or do you think it's in the next 12 to 24 years? Those are two different things. And I think we are headed that way where we will be able to put more of these into um, the hands of our computers, doing things that are transparent and uh, um, rules that are preset and pre-agreed to uh, rather than subject to the whims of the leaders of the day. Um, I, th I think it's actually a little bit far away. Um, one of the biggest things that, that we as technologists, I think, still need to solve, and it goes back to the roots of, uh, of even BitGo, uh, we've never had data that if you lose it, it has the problems that you have with Bitcoin, right? So uh, data as property that has to be secured uh, is a really, really tough thing to do. And whether you're talking about uh, actual money on a blockchain or anything else that's um, protected solely by a private key, we've got to absolutely perfect that notion of the private key. Um, and this could be a generational thing where it could be that the elder generation uh, simply cannot uh, participate there. Uh, maybe even my generation can't participate there. Uh, and maybe it'll be the, the next generation that's able to kind of get their heads around this as the new normal um, for how you deal with, you know, governance, whether it's money or whether it's policy or anything else. Um, anyway, protecting those private keys and having everything rooted behind that is pretty tough. 
um, back to the uh, the broker dealer and the SEC. You know, we 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 know that there's not very many uh, uh, approved broker dealers for digital assets, and uh, a big part of it is you know a Wall Street and also a regulatory concern. What happens if you lose your private key? Do you lose your Apple stock because you lost the mm-hmm. private key to your Apple stock? Um, most people aren't comfortable with that. Uh, I'm not comfortable with that. So we have to solve these types of problems. We have to do it, of course, still in a decentralized way. I think that's a, a huge importance kind of back to the, the meta theme you're talking about here. But until that gets there, I think it's going to be hard for decentralized technologies to just suddenly be adopted. Last question um, on stable coins. Uh, we've, we've seen an explosion in the amount of U.S. dollar reserves that are are. Uh, basically hitting these accounts and, and ultimately helping to, to backstop. Um, again, not audited, but but being <laughs> being used to backstop, uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars now of uh, of, of stablecoins, and, and that seems to be growing by the day. There are new digital dollar initiatives, and and obviously the um, the DSAP proposal in, in China. Um, where um, where does the the support for stablecoins fit into? your suite of tools and, and how important are those digital dollar initiatives that, you know, you, you might actually think could be an order of magnitude larger than the crypto markets, unless you believe in hyper Bitcoinization and, and the fact that, you know, Bitcoin is going to be the, the reserve currency of the world. It seems that there will be a, an outsized role for infrastructure providers like BitGo in the digital dollar realm, even if we haven't really seen it yet. Yeah, well, we need digital dollars. Um, it's going to be hugely enabling. Um, today, you've got transactions that are mostly comprised of a dollar, a non-digital dollar, and a digital asset. And with only half of that on the blockchain, <laughs> the rest of it is left to trust through some centralized um, entity. Um, so digital dollar is going to be huge for that. Right now, we've got some early players. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, questions that remain around Tether. Um, and exactly what is it or is it not? Uh, there's a few better, more um, more understood. USDC looks pretty good. Um, there's been a whole f- slew of other competitors there. Um, it looks increasingly like we will see uh, sovereign governments bringing in their own digital currency types. Um, so now I think we're actually looking at a race uh, where the leaders of every country, every central bank, want them to be the winner. And yet they're all scared of like how to do that. And they don't really have the technical expertise to make it happen. Um, so actually I'm very excited about both prongs of this. We've got a number of great digital asset, um, uh, digital um, stable coins that you can use today that are helping grow the industry. Um, and the not too distant future, I think there will be uh, actual government backed ones for that. And this is going to be the bridge to bring tons of assets into the digital technology. And then eventually the fiat piece might drop away entirely. Um, so I see this is the stepping stone to actually how you get success. I don't think you're going to see that hyper Bitcoinization, as you say, um, without figuring out how to incorporate the dollar better. And if you want to have less risk between the participants, you know, as we were talking about earlier, between custodians, between um, clearing houses between exchanges. We need to be able to swap the dollars equivalently with the, the digital asset all on chain so that we can get that transparency up. Um, so uh, anyway, I think a uh, lot of innovation is going to come in stable coins. A lot of interesting regulation around the world is going to come. Uh, com- competition to become the new world's reserve currency. Um, and ultimately, it's all goodness for the, the end consumer. That is how we get to a digital, um, a digital economy. Lied. 
I do have one more question because I almost forgot that you and everybody else that's in the infrastructure game now has a loan book. And uh, this is a market that has exploded in the past two years. It strikes me that as competition increases, as interest rates get pushed lower, as venture-backed companies um, start to incorporate teaser rates to, to win market share, um, and, and generally speaking, as you have a, an industry that is not necessarily as savvy at pricing risk, you've got this perfect recipe for disaster <laughs> and, and a potential crypto credit crisis. Do you, do you, um, do you look at some of the activity that's, um, that's been going on to date and, and worry about that at all? Or does it, uh, activity like last, you know, two Thursdays ago um, with, with the precipitous price decline make you less worried because, okay, if there wasn't any like catastrophic failures um, per se uh, on, on a day like that, maybe uh, this, you know, there, there aren't the same systemic issues that we saw in like the 2008 financial crisis. And the thing that's always in the back of my mind is with the emergence of derivatives infrastructure, with the emergence of debt infrastructure, um, at some points, a lot of these different services just become fractional by, by definition and, and, and you know, are, are over leveraged and you could have an unwinding that is as bad or worse uh, as we saw in the traditional markets. Yeah, there's kind of a race of two different things happening, right? I mean, in order to make the asset class more attractive to investors, we need to have ways that they can leverage, right? That's how they, that's how they do their stuff. And they do bring value to the industry today in that they promote it and get people excited about it and help disseminate it around the world. Um, but none of that is uh, particularly interesting for the long-term goal. We have to find utility for these coins that has, has long-term va lasting value. Um, so I view it as the speculation phase of crypto is a necessary one to grow adoption and to bring it worldwide, but ultimately that, that'll change. In the interim, what that means is that, yeah, as people get into lending, um, they are taking risks. Um, and we've got a bit of a collision between uh, investors that are used to investing in software as a service type companies. And they're like, hey, it's all about market share and you will, we'll spend more in order to get market share and then we'll win in the end. That might work, but that's a little bit different than what typically happens in the financial services side of the world where you wouldn't use just your balance sheet in order to, um, in order to grow a business. That, that it doesn't matter what business it is, your balance sheet isn't, isn't going to be big enough to, to grow it to ultimate scale. Um, and as a result of folks being willing to use their balance sheet and take risks that they aren't really familiar with, um, we basically, it basically means that risk is not accurately priced into the market. And that creates a, a, a problem, which is that those that do know how to do it right are kind of forced onto the sideline because they won't offer rates that are competitive with those that... Uh, that uh, are just after market share. And we definitely have this going on in the industry right now. So um, it, it's, it's a bit tough. Um, we need to have um, more checks and balances brought into the system. We need to have more of the financial services folks brought in, a little bit less of just the, 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 the straight software side. And then I think ultimately we'll find a blend where the technology of digital assets gives us that transparency that we can see who's solvent, who's not, all the time, 24 hours a day, real time. Um, and, uh, and we'll know exactly where the levers are. Um, in terms of people taking uh, loans that uh, you know, are all off the books, like you're gonna need auditors for that, you're gonna need to understand it, that's not gonna be any different than other asset classes if, if that behavior is happening. So um, uh, I just, I think there will be, 
some failures here. The good news side is that, you know, uh, the digital assets are, um, you know, exactly where they are. So we're going to, we'll get through. You can unwind it. You can unwind the chaos in a worst so, case scenario. Somebody's going to make a mistake. Yeah. Um, rehypothecation, you know, is, uh, is starting for a few, um, that makes, uh, that kind of adds an, an exponential layer of complexity on top mm -hmm. of this. And, um, you know, without, without having just regular lending market risk, uh, properly priced, I think the rehypothecation, um, uh, it may, it, it's harder. So DeFi I think is really promising. Um, it's kind of hard to understand how a synthetic dollar can work, um, which of course is the basis at the bottom layer of, uh, of all of the DeFi technology. Um, we are learning. I think there's going to be some interesting prospects that come out of that over time. It's not ready yet. Um, the fact is, is that a very rapid, you know, three sigma type of event uh, will catch a DeFi system just like it would uh, a human system. Um, it's just a matter of the velocity of price moving too fast to catch your safeguards. Um, that's it. Mike, uh, it's been great catching up. Uh, really appreciate you coming on for, uh, for, for this episode. And uh, hopefully we've added some sex appeal uh, to, to, to your business. I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry to insult you like that at the onset. But uh, <laughs> if you say it's a sexy business, then I think our viewers will have to agree. Um, All right. But, uh, but it, is, it is certainly an important uh, business and uh, one that's done very, very well. So congrats and, uh, and, and hope you guys weather the storm. Just, uh, just like the rest of the industry, uh, thank Mike Belshi. All you do for the industry. Thank you, and uh, for for those tuning in, this episode with Mike will go live later this week. It's a tight turnaround. I fell a little bit behind on podcast recording because I had such deep cue, but we are back caught up, and these are going to be a little bit more real time. So we're recording this on March thirtieth, and you will see it in just a few days. Have a murderer's row of guests coming up. But uh, for today, Mike Belshi, co-founder and CEO of BitGo, crypto pioneer, all around good guy. Check it out. Subscribe. Tell your friends. And, uh, and check out bitco.com. Did you get the .com? Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, we're in the big leagues now, man. We're not talking about several years ago. All right, man. Stay safe. And uh, thank you again for coming on. Until next time, everybody that's tuned in, thank you for joining us. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.